Let me read 14 through 18 in Ephesians 2. We'll kind of go back and set the scene for those of you who have uh, forgotten either what we went through or you're, you're really struggling to make these connections. Picking up in, in verse 14 and reading through verse 18, Paul writes and he says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. What Paul is doing, what Paul is doing in chapter 2 of Ephesians, is showing all the ways that God is, is reconciling. You remember in Ephesians 1.10, he said he's uniting all things in him. All things are united in Jesus Christ. And what he's showing in chapter 2, in the first little bit, he's showing that how he makes dead things alive. In 2, 1 through 3, how he makes dead things alive. Okay? Harping in especially on verse 4. God is moving in kindness and in mercy. And then what we saw last week, What we saw last week in 11 through 13 is Paul turned from this broad discussion of how God makes dead things alive to how he has moved, particularly in the life of the Gentile believers, to get them to God. And so he talked about all the disadvantages that they had as Gentile believers in their former way of life. They didn't have this community of faith. They didn't have access to God. He characterized them and said, look, you're without hope and you had no God in the world. And so he went through... And point by point, he showed them five ways they were at great disadvantage as compared to the Jew. Now, what he's heading towards, what he's heading towards is this radical unity in the church. But there's something that stands between our ability to really see this. You see, there's, there's a number of years removed, and so we don't really reconcile. Like, we're not seeking to struggle with what is it to be a Jewish background believer and a Gentile or Greek background believer. We don't really see that. Historically, you can place yourself in this situation, but it's not something you really wrestle with, right? We're not going to church with people who necessarily have a Jewish background and a Greek background. But one of the other things, and I think probably the major thing that that militates against us really coming to a clear understanding of what Paul is getting at with this understanding of a radical unity in the church is we just don't see it. We just don't really really see it manifested. We don't really see it shown. I want you to look around. Just kind of just glance around, look around. Even in the places we sit, even in the separation we have from other believers in this church, it's showing that we really have a hard time with this idea of unity. You look up a roster of churches in almost any community, and you'll find that there are churches centered around a a variety of, 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 of hobbies, of lifestyles, of musical preference, of you're a late out, you know, like you like to stay up late at night, you like to wake up early in the morning. And so we've made church 
for uh, a one-size-fits-all? No, 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 no. We've made church your way. And so you can have it however you want it. And you don't have to be unified with people that you don't share the same characteristics, the same wants, the same desires, and the same lifestyles as. Now, some of these churches are making tremendous inroads into places where we otherwise had not seen much progress, okay? And so probably the fastest growing demographic of church in Hunt County in this area is the Cowboy Church. Going into, into that cowboy culture and, and taking country and western songs and changing them and, and taking out, you know, making mama cry and, you know, having all these girlfriends that leave you with, you know, praise God and Jesus and redemption. And they're just changing out all these vocabulary words. And so my parents went to a cowboy church for a while and my dad said, I swear that sounds like Waylon Jennings, but those aren't the original words. <laughs> my mom said, no, nah, I think that was a Willie Nelson song. But you're right, it seems that the words have been altered, the words have been changed. Now what Paul describes here is something so much more radical than older people, younger people, black, white, Latino, Hispanic, racial, ethnic backgrounds, so much more radical than musical taste preference, waking up later early, socioeconomic status, strata, where you come from. He's talking about something so much more radical, and the way he describes them is coming together. Now, this passage challenges us to no end, to seek to manifest this in anybody you're ever a part of. Let's walk through it and see how that works. Look how he starts here. Paul writes something that... that, that, is beautifully devastating to the very depths of my soul. Paul starts speaking of Jesus. He says, for he himself is our peace. He himself is our peace. Now Paul is is pulling on this idea of of what the the Jewish expectation of the Messiah, and specifically Isaiah 9-6. Isaiah 9-6 in this, this prophecy of the one who would come says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So Paul gets into this idea and he says, look, Jesus is the fulfillment of all those things anticipated. Jesus is the fulfillment of all those things waited for. And as for their community, for our community, in our lives as individuals, Paul writes and we testify with him, he himself is our peace. He himself is our peace. But we see all these things in our society, we see all these things that seek to say, no, 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 no. This is you how, how you have peace in your relationship. This is how you and your wife get along. This is how you get along with people you don't like. You just don't talk to them. You just cut them out of your life. You just set barriers and boundaries up. But no, what we read here is that a life without Jesus is a life without peace. A life without Jesus is a life without peace. Paul explicitly writes and says, He himself is our peace. Recognize the way Jesus brings peace is through his broken body. And for the person that accepts that gift of salvation, that person is given peace. Peace that surpasses all expectation and understanding. Now this is what this peace is not. This peace is not still calm water. You talk to many of those that endure the greatest suffering as Christians, and you say, did you have 
you know, did you have a peace in that moment? They're like, are you kidding me? My heart was beating out of my chest. My life was hanging in the balance. No, I wasn't like, you know, this is just this casual thing. Peace, peace that he's describing here isn't this lack of, uh, of anticipation that something bad is going to happen to you if you're in the middle of a situation and somebody's going to take your head off. That's not what he's describing. There's a physiological thing that happens in those situations. Your heart beats faster, right? You begin to sweat. If you're like me, you begin to sweat profusely, and they look at you and say, why are you sweating so profusely? And I say, I don't know. That's just how God made me. And then they kill me. Question answered, then they kill me. There is something he's describing here, though. He says, look, he is our peace. Without Jesus, there's simply no peace. Now look how he did this. Look how Jesus becomes the peacemaker. Paul writes and he says, he is our peace. He is the one who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Now this is a, a jam-packed uh, expression, phrase here. And if, if, if we didn't have our Wednesday night Bible study this week because it was snowy in the morning and then beautifully dangerous in the afternoon. Right? I, I, we canceled our Wednesday night Bible study. I sent Jay a picture in the morning and of one in the afternoon. In the morning, it was nasty. No one would want to be on the road. In the afternoon, it was dangerously beautiful. Blue skies and just a touch of crispness in the air. Now, what Paul writes here, he says, look, by abolishing the law of the commandments is what follows, but he says, who has made us both one and broken down in his flesh and dividing wall of hostility. On Wednesday night, I teach an in-depth Bible study. We could have spent the whole hour on this phrase, and we're going to give just a few minutes to it here. This is what has happened. Prior to the coming of Jesus, prior to uh, him offering salvation to humanity, one of the ways this hostility and separation was most clearly displayed was at the temple. So at the temple, you had this, this court where the Gentiles could go and, and, and separating where the Gentiles could be and where the Jews could go as they began to approach was a wall. And, and, and written on that wall and written near the entrance of that wall, it says, if you enter into this place speaking to Gentiles, it is your fault that you bring ensuing death upon yourself. There was a sign illustrating, showing to them that to approach God was something that they weren't allowed to do. And so to cross over that barrier made them responsible for what? For their ensuing death. This is what Paul writes. This is what Paul writes. He says, Jesus, the one who has made peace, Jesus, this one who did it, he has broken down in his flesh this dividing wall of hostility. What he's getting at, what he's describing, is the law. The law separated Jews from Gentiles. And he did it in a couple of ways. One, it, 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 it gave the Jews safety and security. It was a fence to keep others out. And it was, a, it was a partition to keep them in, to keep them secure. And so what Paul writes here, he says that when Jesus Christ, he came, he surrendered his life, he took that wall and he broke it down. He took that wall and he destroyed it, this wall of hostility, this wall of enmity. There was hostility between the Jew and the Gentile. The Jew would look at the Gentile and say, you are not worthy. The Gentile would look longingly towards this and say, you are exclusive, you are holding this back for yourself and yourself only. And it created hostility between the Jew and the Gentile. Now look here. 
he goes on and he offers us something that's interesting and maybe a little bit peculiar for you. He says in verse 15, he did this by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. So the question becomes, Matt, how does this reconcile with, with Matthew five seventeen? And you can flip over there. You remember that in Matthew 5, Jesus goes through and he's giving these, blessed are thee, blessed are thee. And then he gets into verse 13, he says, you are the salt of the earth. But in verse 17, he turns. And talking basically about his mission and his prerogative, he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Now, hold on a second. Verse 15 here says that by abolishing the law and the commandments expressed in ordinances. So what is Jesus doing? Why is there no compatibility? What's going on between what Paul says and what Jesus says? Jesus says, don't worry, I haven't come to abolish the law or the prophets. Look what he says next. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. But to fulfill them. The reason that Paul is able to write in such a way and to say that Jesus came in, he completely destroyed this wall separating the Jew and the Gentile is because Jesus Christ perfectly fulfilled the sacrificial system. Jesus Christ was a perfect sacrifice once for all that he might be able to redeem humanity. This is what Paul is saying here. He abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. For what purpose? That he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace. Now this is really where this begins to rub on us. Look what he says. Look what this work of reconciliation does. He abolished these things, he united people, and he says he did this, that he might create where? In himself. In himself. In Jesus, Paul writes that that humanity is radically reconciled. He creates in himself what? Two equal counterparts? No, look, he says here, clearly, one new man, what? In place of two. One new man in place of two. This is why Clement of Alexandria, Jerome, and others, when speaking of the Christian, he said there's Jew, There's Gentile, and the Christian is a third race. The Christian is a third humanity. Think about that. Dwell on that. Think about every line and division that you end up making in your mind towards your other brothers and sisters in Christ that you have difficulty with, that you have struggles with. We find within Christianity there, there is a vast spectrum. And, and, and this spectrum exists on a number of, of issues, on a number of levels. And so it comes to the issues of Arminianism and Calvinism. And, and, and you've got one side on the far left and one side on the far right. And we recognize truth is likely somewhere closer to the middle. Right? Can you go there with me? In Jesus Christ, both those groups are reconciled. recognize that in the South, in the U.S., and this is something I didn't grow up in the South, I was not raised in the South, so this is something that I still struggle with. That in the South, churches are largely, largely split upon race. 
you get past race and they're largely split upon socioeconomic, how much money you have in your bank account or pretend to have. And you really, you're just maxed out on credit cards. Past that, we see people that, that split on issues of, of musical preference. I've told many of you that if God ever blesses to the point where we're able to go to multiple services, you're going to have to get another pastor because I can only pastor one church at a time. So many churches, when they do that, they have a contemporary service and they have a, a traditional service that splits the church along lines of preference. I'm not willing to do it. If Jesus Christ, in his body, radically unites two people that are so opposed to one another, who are we to create false distinctions? If Jesus Christ, in his sacrifice, in him surrendering himself, if he is able to unite the Jew and the Gentile by abolishing the wall of hostility between them, who are we to create walls of false distinction to do so? To do so is to spit on the blood of Jesus Christ. When we seek to create distinctions purposely, purposely, when we seek to create these distinctions, we spit on the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is about reconciliation He is creating a new humanity. And he does this between two groups who are radically opposed to one another. The Jew and the Gentile. Do we want to be about the business of what Jesus Christ was doing? Or do we want to be about the business of doing what makes us most comfortable? It gets awkward. It gets difficult. But we most perfectly glorify God when we seek to honor what his word calls us to do. We must not create distinctions where scripture would have us not do it. We must not create separations where scripture would have us be united. You know why we went through Titus? One of the reasons we went through Titus is so that we could talk about what multi-generational Christianity and multi-generational church could be. You know what you get if you have a church of nothing but young people? No child care. No, just kidding. <clears throat> but seriously, you have no child care because everybody's having all these kids. If you get a church with nothing but young people, you really have no depth. You have no people who can say, for 70 years, God has been faithful to me. For 70 years, I have, blood, I have bled, I have sweat, and I have cried. But through it all, he has remained faithful. If you get a church but nothing but old people, all you have are war stories of what used to happen and what no longer does. If you get a church of only one race or one ethnicity, you're missing this beautiful shades and all the colors of the rainbow. God richly blessed me and allowed me to grow up in, in churches that were, were, were international, right? Churches of, of 30 plus nationalities of every shade under the rainbow and all these different hues and colors and makeups. That is what we want. We want to look like our community because we want to minister our, to our community. And as we're doing that, we don't want to set up false distinctions on who is welcome and who's not welcome. Amen? Amen.
We're going to follow Jesus even and especially when it works against those sinful habits that we, we are so ingrained to seek self and self-gratification. But look what he says here. He's created these, these two and recognize that between these two there used to be hostility. There used to be hostility. It's not that the Jew and the Gentile would meet for chess and and they would have this amical game of chess, and then when it would, it would end, one would punch the other in the face and say, see you next week, same time, same chessboard. No, there was hostility between the two, and in uniting the two, Jesus, who is peace, is making peace. And so we recognize that even as we ask others to join with us, and we have people that, that are not, they don't look like you and I, they don't talk like you and I, they don't have the same backgrounds that you and I do, we recognize that there is a tendency towards tension. There's a tendency towards difficulty and tension. But the Jesus who made peace, Jesus can make peace, right? He made peace between humanity and God, and he is making peace between you and I, between our brothers and sisters who we can reach out to and continue to expand the reach of his kingdom. And why did he do this? Look here in verse 16. He said, at Jesus who is peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. Now Paul gives a more full explanation of this over in Colossians. Colossians 1, 19 through 22. Just flip to the right a page or two. He says, he has now reconciled us in his body of the flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. God has reckoned the redeemed righteous and able to be presented before the Father. It's not that they worked things out, it's that God worked things out for them. He has now reconciled us in the body of his flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. What a weighty concept that God has done for the believer. He's done it for believers of every shade and background. He wants to reconcile us through his cross. The way God saw fit to reconcile the Jew and the Gentile was through the broken body of his son, Jesus Christ. The way God saw fit to reconcile the adulterer and the liar is through the broken body of Jesus Christ. The way that Jesus sees fit to reconcile the older person and the younger person is through the broken body of Jesus Christ and his cross. The way that God is reconciling and restoring relationships in this church and the world over. The way that God is reconciling humanity is only through the cross. Not some great humanitarian effort, but it is in fact the greatest human aid and relief work ever done. It is the cross of Jesus Christ. And thereby killing the hostility. The slain became the slayer. The slain became the slayer. Jesus who was slain, who was laid in the tomb, whose rock rolled away, who rose and sits and rules at the right hand of the Father. Jesus who was slain also slayed death and hostility. He is working to unite and he works to unite still. He kills the hostility. Look at all the connections that Paul makes for us here in, in verse 17. It says, Jesus is killing the hostility, and he came, Jesus, and he came and preached peace to you who are far off, 
and peace to those who are near. Now, he's, he's, he's doing a couple of things here. He's making some connections to some other passages for us. If you can't turn quickly, you can write these down and look them up on your own later. First, we, we see this idea appear in Romans 10. Romans 10 and verse 15, Paul says, How are they to preach unless they are sent? And as it is written, and he's quoting Isaiah 52, 7, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, who bring the good news to those who are far off. Now Isaiah, when he writes this, what he is talking about is those who are in exile and those who are in the land. But Paul appropriates this for New Testament purposes. Paul, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is offering us this interpretation, is offering us this word. He says that ultimately, this is what God had in mind. This is what God had in mind, that he would work to reconcile the Jew and the Gentile. The Jew are those who are near. The Gentile are those who are far off. The Gentile are those who are far off. He says, this is what happened. He came and he preached peace to you. Those who are far off and those who are near. Now flip over to Isaiah. Isaiah 57. I said, pick up at 19. He says, peace, peace to the far off and to the near, says the Lord. And I will heal him. Isaiah had this tremendous expectation that the Messiah would come and that he would bring peace, that he would come and he would bring healing, that he would come and that he would set things right. When the gospel is preached, The Spirit of God is interceding. The Spirit of God is doing the Word. When the Word goes out, when you go to your lost friends and family or or the checker at Brookshire's, no matter where you go with the gospel, when you are communicating it to somebody else, there's no magic in what you say, but there's the Holy Spirit of God who's doing a work in that person's heart. And we know from Scripture that God's, God's Word does not return void. It accomplishes the purpose for which it is sent. Not the purpose that we necessarily have on our hearts. Too often Christians have used the Bible to beat people over the head and to beat them into submission. We recognize that God's Word accomplishes the purpose for which it was written, the purpose for which He intended it, and not some perverted end of man. But when we go out, and we are faithful to extend and present the gospel to lost people. The Holy Spirit of God is, is, is working with those words. He is working on that person's heart. And we trust, as we read in Acts, that he is convicting that person of sin. And our prayer is that he would call that person to righteousness. Now, this is the amazing thing. When you came to faith, It was in a very real sense the preaching of Jesus that drew you. You say, no, it was some old, fat, white guy with with balding head that he was trying to hide. And nobody was getting past the fact that he had a comb over that started on his shoulder. When you were saved, it was the preaching of Jesus Christ. All preaching that puts the word of God forward is ultimately the preaching of Jesus Christ because these are his words. 
And it is his spirit that goes forth and brings resultant action and brings resultant life change. When you were far off, when you were obstinate and, as Paul writes, dead, as Paul further describes, without God in the world and now recognizing you were truly without hope, when you received that word in your state, being far off, God brought you peace. God brought you peace. We can see that now. And we can recognize that now, being on the other side of salvation. God goes and he preaches this glorious message of salvation through the broken body of Jesus Christ to those who are far off and to those who are near. Friends, don't let this passage lead you to believe that there are divisions among lost people. Don't let this passage lead you to believe that those who are morally superior to those who are adulterers or liars or or pimps or prostitutes, don't allow this verse to lead you to believe that there is a, a, a scale system in heaven that it's easier to save the morally upright person than it is to save the morally impoverished person. Do you hear what I'm saying? For whatever reason, we've, we've concocted this scale in our mind, this system of understanding, that we, we desire to share the gospel with people that look like us and then have less baggage than we're willing to really encounter. And so when we encounter somebody and their life is just a complete mess and they're talking about all the things that are going wrong in their life and they're living with this guy and thinking about moving on with this guy and they've got all these children, all these problems and they've got prison sentences and all these things, we look at them and say, I just don't think the gospel is good enough to help you. Like, you need a lot of help. Let's get, you, let's get you sorted. Let's get you meeting with a good group of ladies. Let's get you a good uh, action figure and, and person in your life who can steer you in the right direction. And later on, when we can tidy up some of these things in your life, friend, the gospel is going to be awesome for you. You might not have the, the gumption, the gall to say that, but in our actions, that's really how we feel. Our actions display that to be our habit, our actions display that to be our mindset. We want to go to the guy who works at a bank. Everybody says he's the most amazing person they've ever met. He loves his wife. He loves his kids. He gives money to charity. He, in fact, he, he, he works for charity. We want to go to that guy. We want to show him the gospel because in our minds, he's got a shorter distance to overcome. And that is a humanity perspective. That is a human perspective of a spiritual condition. There is no person who is closer to salvation because they've lived a good life. In the eyes of God, all of humanity is far away. And he's bringing them all near. He bringing them near through the body and blood of Jesus Christ. His son crucified. His son resurrected. His son ascended. Amen? Look at this. Look at this. He goes to those who are far off. He goes to those who are near. And in verse 18 he says, For through him, for through Jesus Christ, we both Jews, Gentiles, we both white, black, we both rich, poor, we both, we all, 
through him. We all have access in one spirit to the Father. There is not one spirit for the rich and one spirit for the poor. There is not one church for the rich and one church for the poor. There is not one church for the black and one church for the white. There is one Jesus, one spirit, one God for all humanity, for all times. And what he says here, what he writes here, what he gives us an indication of here is that through Jesus Christ, everyone, anywhere, at all times is able to have access, access to the Father. This is tremendous news. You and I have an open door relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Now Paul or, or, or whoever the author of Hebrews is, really spells this out for us in Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Speaking of Jesus again, he says, Since, since then we have this great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Basically, because Jesus is so good, let us hold fast to the thing that we know. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. This is how Jesus outdoes humanity. This is how Jesus outdoes humanity. He was tempted in every way that you are. He was tempted in every way that I am. But what is the major difference? What is the distinction? Yet without sin. Let us then, let us then basically on the basis of Jesus and how far superior he is to everything, let us then on the basis of his perfect sacrifice, let us then on the basis that he was such an amazingly better high priest than anybody could ever imagine, let us then on the basis of this, let us draw with confidence near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in a time of need. When you come to salvation at the most incredible point of need in your life, at the darkest moment of your life, you recognize that the work of Jesus as the great high priest for humanity for all time is allowing you access to the Father, not fear and trepidation access, but what does he say? Bold confidence. Bold confidence. We have bold confidence in this ability to enter in and have access to the Father. How amazing is that? How amazing is that? That we have access to the Father, one, but as the author of Hebrews describes, what is it? You have bold confidence. No, it's not in what you have done. Do you hear me on that? It's not on what you have done. It's not that I said the right things. It's not that I was a member of the right church. The reason you're able to have bold confidence is because of Jesus and how truly great and amazing he is. The reason we're able to go door to door and share the gospel with people is because of Jesus and how truly amazing he is. The reason that God is able to extend to us grace and mercy in our time of need is because Jesus and how truly amazing he is. We have access to the Father in one spirit through Jesus. And we still, like this passage still seems to unpack and get me over and over again. This idea of access is tremendous. I can't tell you how great this is. If you had access to me the way we have access to God, I would never get anything done. Technology is an amazing thing until you're getting emails at two in the morning. Technology is an amazing thing until you're getting texts at all hours of the day until people you don't know are calling you and say, hey, what's up? Got a minute? You're like, no, not really. It's like three in the morning, man. What's going on? I don't know, I'm like, I'm, you know, it's, it's 10 in the morning here, I'm seven, seven hours ahead of you. Hey, look, well, this can wait until it's my time. If you had access to me like we've got access to God, I would get nothing done. I would have to quit my job. 
But some of us treat our access to God like our access to the Oval Office. Some of us treat our access to God like our access to somebody incredibly far superior, like the Queen Mother. You're never going to go there. Most of you will never go to Great Britain. And if you try and get access to the Queen, you're going to be arrested. Hopefully they'll chalk it up to being a stupid yank. Just go with that. If they give that to you, you go with it all day long. But we have this tremendous access to God. And look at how Paul characterizes him. The Father. Do you recognize God as your father? Some of you had horrible relationships with your father growing up, so it's very difficult for you to think of a man being good and being kind and being loving. But the image we see here that Paul puts forward is not of some mean, vindictive, and impunitive father. It's of this great and glorious father who before the foundations of the world set up this system where you might come to know him and be saved from sin and death in yourself. And so Paul writes here, and he says, we have access through Jesus Christ in one spirit to the Father. Let me just read for you this verse out of Galatians 4. Paul says, starting in verse 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as Sons. And because you receive adoption as sons, because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if you are a son, then you are an heir through God. Friends, You have access to the Father through Jesus Christ in one spirit. And he looks on you as a son and he looks on you as a daughter. The amazing reason that we're able to see reconciliation happen in churches, happen in any relationship. is because in redemption, God is reconciling all things through Jesus Christ. He's making all of humanity a third race. He's making all of humanity a third race. The Christian, the Christ follower, the believer. And there is no distinction in there to be made. But for those of you who are still far off, for those of you that have not allowed yourself to be brought near by the blood of Jesus, this access stands available. This access is not elusive. It's not a trick. It's not a bait and switch. For all of humanity, at all times, the access to the Father comes through Jesus and is available to all. That's what the church stands on. Where do we find our unity? Where do we find our purpose? Where do we find our point of reconciliation? It's not in our ability to, to go along to get along. It's in, our reconcil- it's in our understanding that God has reconciled all of us in one man, 
through the broken body of Jesus Christ. And listen to this. Listen to this. Anyone, pastor, layperson, sainted deacon, anyone moving against that unity isn't moving against me. They're moving against God. Does this mean we can't have disagreement in church? I certainly hope not. Does this mean that we can't have a variety of opinion? I certainly hope not. I have two or three opinions all week. I only get to share one of them with you on Sunday. That was funny. Lunch will get that. (laughs) Working against the unity of the body, purposely working against the unity of the body is working against God. You get that? Purposely working against the unity of the body is working against the purposes of God. Why would we seek to tear down that thing, to build false distinctions in that thing that Jesus, through his blood, sought to reconcile? Amen? Let me pray for us.